This is Dr. Rob Harder with the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast, making your world better. What does it take to be an effective nonprofit leader today? What are the biggest challenges? What are the biggest obstacles? How should nonprofits fundraise in an economy that is constantly changing? All of these reasons combined led me to start this show. And it's my hope that through this series, people can learn not only what it takes to be an effective nonprofit organization, but to hear from effective leaders who are successfully making a positive impact in their communities. We hope you enjoy the show as together we hear how they are making their world better. There's no doubt that we've moved into a new normal in our culture in the wake of the COVID pandemic. So how should we lead in this new normal? Do we as nonprofit leaders need to shift our leadership style or or change the way we are fundraising or retool our programs and services? Well, that and other topics around leadership will be discussed with my guest today, Gaston Warner. Gaston is the CEO of Zoe Empowers, which is a nonprofit organization that envisions children who once lived in poverty become entrepreneurs, providers, and leaders in their community who know their worth and abilities. They have a really unique model, and Gaston will share the leadership lessons he has learned along the way. I also want to give a shout out to one of my reviewers. His name is The Awesome Developer. That's at least his iTunes name. So Awesome Developer, thank you so much for writing up a great review of the podcast. And I would just say, if you're listening to this podcast and love it, please write up a review. Uh, reviews are one of the best ways we can get this podcast out to more leaders just like yourself. All right, that's enough intro. Enjoy today's show. Well, thanks for being on the show, Gaston. Uh, there are several things I look forward to diving into today, but I have to start out by congratulating you for winning the .org Impact Awards for the category of Fighting Hunger and Poverty. Congrats on that award. That's a big deal. We're so excited. Thanks so much. Absolutely. You know, and for my listeners, it was fun. Some of you who follow my blog, I was just one of the judges and it was such a fun experience. And I was talking to you, Gaston, earlier before the show. It's really hard to choose between these incredible nonprofits. But I will have to say, Zoe Empowers is an excellent nonprofit. You're doing great work. So I'm really glad to have you on the show so my listeners can learn a little bit more about what you do. So let's dive in. Um, Give us a quick overview of Zoe Empowers. How did it get started and what is your primary mission? Absolutely. So Zoe Empowers, what it actually does, it's a global network of local organizations that are equipping orphaned and vulnerable children living in life-threatening poverty to be able to sustainably move beyond charity in a permanent way, kind of wrapped in layers of community. It's really the coolest mission. But the way it got started is what really fascinated me when when I first came across it. So Zoe, Zoe itself started in 2004 with a group of churches in North Carolina that wanted to respond to the, uh, the global pandemic of HIV AIDS at that time and, and all the orphans left in its wake. And so they started off with just a normal relief ministry, doing feeding programs and clothing programs and scholarship programs and all those kind of basic things that, that they knew to do. And then in 2006, they had this weird problem of an overage of funding, but they didn't want to just wait a second. That never happened in a nonprofit. (laughs) How did that happen? It hasn't happened since. I keep waiting for it. But but at that time in 2006, they had this overage of funding at the end of the year. And they said, we need to invest this in a really, in a way that'll make a permanent impact. So they put out word that they were looking for someone who was really moving the ball sustainably with orphan children in Africa. 
And they were introduced to this Rwandan social worker named Epiphany Mujuamata. And Epiphany had this crazy program that was coming at the, the whole issue of orphan care in a completely different way. And, and so they were fascinated. Epiphany had been raised as a vulnerable child herself in Rwanda. She had sold onions on the side of the road. She had put herself through school and become a successful school teacher. And then the 1994 genocide wiped her country. I mean, it really just set everything back. And her heart went out to the tens of thousands of orphaned and vulnerable youth that were left in the wake of that. And so she went to work for some large Western aid organization because that's where the resources were. And she worked for each for several years and became disillusioned with the work. And this is what she said. She said, I watched as these generous people would come to my country and give things to these children that these children desperately needed. And then I watched as the children became so dependent on that outside aid that they forgot how to do things for themselves. So, so that's kind of the backstory of Epiphany. So when she worked for these organizations, she finally said, there's got to be a better way. I was raised as a child like this. I know they have God-given skills and God-given abilities. What they lack is opportunity. And so on a shoestring budget, with a group of other Rwandan social workers frustrated by that cycle of relief and dependency, Epiphany started working directly with the village leaderships and more important, with the orphan youth themselves. And what she did is she would gather them, and she started off asking a different question than I had ever heard. My question, especially working with people on the edge of life and in kind of those life-threatening situations, my question had always been, what can I do to help these orphaned young people? Epiphany started off with the question, what are the pieces in their life that they would need in order to stand on their own feet? And so asking that very different question, that's how she came up with what eventually became Zoe's kind of three-year community-based indigenous-led empowerment program. And, and that kind of setting it in that very different way, in ways that I would have never even thought to organize it, has made the impact so much bigger. I really like that. I want to restate that for my listeners because you said something really powerful. You kind of came at it with what do they need and how can I meet that need? And, and she came at it more of, you know, what are the things, the tools they need to really self-empower themselves, if I could say it that way. Is that how she approached it? That's exactly how she approached it. Because she knew she had, she had pulled herself up from that situation with some luck and some help from a church that helped her out. But she knew and she watched these children. They were working in other people's fields. They were working in other people's shops. It's not that they lacked intelligence or ability or motivation. They just didn't have opportunity or access to capital or community that would allow them to thrive. I love that. That's really, really good. And well, and I want to get into leadership. You know, my podcast is all about leadership. And so let's transition a bit because I know it's going to, we're going to hear more about Zoe and Powers as you give your examples, I'm sure, about leadership. First, what has been the greatest challenge for leadership when it comes to your role there at Zoe Empowers? So for Zoe, and it, 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 it transitions a little from what Zoe is, but, it, but it's part and parcel uh, to the organization. I, I had worked in leadership roles in different nonprofits and churches before. For Zoe, we, we found ourselves with this incredibly powerful program 
designed by Africans and run by Africans that was having a bigger impact than I had ever seen or even imagined. And the challenge, the leadership challenge of that is how do we bring Americans into that mix or any Westerner, but, but Americans I'll speak about because that's my own people. How do we bring Americans into that mix where we can encase this powerful program in a bureaucratic structure that doesn't decrease the power of the program? And most importantly, how do we do it where the Americans don't take over? That's a delicate kind of piece that I haven't seen done very well. And we're trying it with varying levels of success, but, but we're really serious about participating with the program and, and leading the programs, but in ways that it, it's a servant leadership from behind. Oh, I really like that. That's an excellent question to ask yourself on a regular basis. So thanks for sharing that. And, you know, you've worked with leaders over the years and you've grown, of course, as a leader. What are the key characteristics of leaders who will be able to sustain effective leadership over a long period of time? In other words, what separates out in your mind effective leaders who prevail and those who fade away? Yeah, and that's, a, that's an interesting question because I've, I've seen lots of people succeed uh, that, that seem like very disparate personality types. Uh, and I've seen lots of people fail that seem like very disparate personality types. It, it strikes me, though, especially in nonprofit work, but maybe any work, that passion is a key component. You kind of have to love what you do and be driven by it. But there's a passion there. If the board fired me from Zoe, I would have to volunteer because it's just, it's just the best thing I've ever seen. And so it's easy to be passionate about something like that. The other leaders that I really looked up to and respected have been able not always to know every detail of the organization, but they see the whole very clearly and how individual pieces fit into that whole. Pieces that already exist and might can be improved to fit in better, but also pieces that are missing that if they could click into place, things would really take off. And then I guess kind of the third piece that I, I really, the leaders I respect seem to do well is they maximize people that they work with. So when, when you know, they're, they're a leader and they take that leadership role, but they're always quick to develop other colleagues in their leadership role so that it's, they're a leader among leaders and not this kind of mystical character that the whole organization is depending on, but more a leader among leaders where everyone is kind of developing their own skill sets. Oh, I like both of those passion, developing other leaders. Love it. Well, and one of the things I want to talk about more with leadership is how you manage stress and how do you find those opportunities where you really create some more boundaries. So for example, Gaston, when it comes to leading an organization during a crisis, like the pandemic we've just been going through the last year and a half, there's certainly times when leaders need to lead with urgency, right? In the face of fear and, and make quick decisions and it's uncertain and there's a lot of stress. And I feel like, you know, I found that leaders need to harness the right amount of energy during stressful times, but there's also comes to a point where maybe your job as a leader and your organization that you're leading other leaders or trying to build up other leaders, you get to the point where the stress becomes so much, particularly in a crisis, but even in say normal times, there's times where the stress gets so high, the stress moves from a doable stress to a destructive stress. So in your own leadership and as you lead your team, how do you define those two? And what happens and what have you done when you slip into more of the destructive stress cycle? How do you manage that as a leader? Rob, I, I really like your categories, kind of doable stress and destructive stress. I think that's helpful. And, and with doable stress, 
that seems a very generative place for me and, and for, for leaders that I've seen and for whole organizations. During a crisis, there's an opportunity to improve and to take some risk and to, to do things that actually make the organization better long term, even beyond the present crisis. I think, I think a little bit of stress always is useful to us and brings out our A game. You know, uh, mother, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. And I, I found that to be true <laughs> over and over again. So I always kind of look to a crisis. I don't look forward to crises and certainly never try to create them and try to avoid them, in fact. But when they're there, there's this generative space where where things can happen. I, I like that. I kind of see that as part of the doable stress and to look for those opportunities. The destructive stress, and I always have to guard myself against either of these sides. It seems like there's two sides of the cliff to fall off of. You can, you can have, you can either be paralyzed, and in a crisis, you know, there's all these things that need attention all at one time, and it can be paralyzing where you just kind of freeze. And the leaders that I've really looked up to have been able to take all those things in, sort out again, seeing that hole. Uh, and how the pieces fit in, sort out the, the critical pieces and be able to focus themselves and the organization on the things that are really going to move the ball forward. But on the other side of that, there's also the flailing reaction where someone says, I've got to lead and this is a crisis and things are going badly, so I've got to do all these different things. And sometimes the best thing to do is to let things play out a little bit. I don't know where I heard this from or where I read it. it. It was years and years ago, but it was a quote that stuck with me. They said, 80% of the time, the best thing to do is nothing. Now, the other 20% of the time are pretty critical. If you don't act then, everything goes down the drain. But a lot of times, just allowing something to play out a little bit opens up vistas. And if you flail, you can cause more harm than good. For example, with Zoe, we have a lot of church support. And during the pandemic, we were nervous about how much support would come in because churches were hurting, individuals were, were kind of not sure about what was going to happen. But if we had leaned on our churches during a time when they were experiencing financial vulnerability, that wouldn't be good for them and it wouldn't produce any good result for us. And so rather just kind of being in conversation saying, hey, we understand that you all are going through uh, times, let's just share information of where both our organizations are. And, and, you know, kind of plot a way forward seemed like a much better way than just all of a sudden really pushing and guilting churches into trying to step up during a difficult time. We'll be right back. Hey, friends. Thanks so much for listening to the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast. If this is your first time listening to us, I want to make sure you're aware of a whole group of other episodes with fascinating guests that I previously interviewed. Just go to our website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. There you'll find numerous interviews of nonprofit leaders from all over the country and even from different countries, all trying to make their world better. I also want to encourage you to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with others. This will help us get this great content out to more nonprofit leaders just like you. Now, finally, if you want to get my monthly email update that contains more resources in addition to these episodes, it's really easy. Just go to my website at nonprofitleadershippodcast.org and simply type your email address in the top right-hand box, and you'll be added to our monthly email update. And this way, you'll never miss any of the interviews or extra content from this show. And if you have any questions or comments, do not hesitate to email me. 
Thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. Well, that's a great segue in terms of fundraising. That's always a challenge for all of us nonprofit leaders. In addition to the fundraising challenges nonprofits face, sustainability in general is still something that's really elusive for more nonprofits than most people realize. Let me just share a few data points that came up actually with one of my guests that I had on the show several months ago. And his this is what he found from his research. Get this, three points I'll share with you. Seven to eight percent of current nonprofits, seven to eight percent of current nonprofits are technically insolvent. That's not very encouraging. Uh, and yet another stat, 30% of nonprofits today have lost money over the last three years, 30%. And then 50% of all nonprofits, half of all nonprofits have less than one month of operation reserves on hand. I think it's very concerning for all of us in the nonprofit world. So, and by the way, these stats don't just apply to small nonprofits. This applies to nonprofits of all sizes. So in other words, just because you're a larger nonprofit, I know Zoe Empowers, I think falls in that larger nonprofit category. It doesn't mean that you're immune from these challenges either. So I'm curious, Gaston, if you could share what's your advice to nonprofit leaders listening to this show when it comes to fundraising, what has helped you not only survive, but actually thrive? Yeah, I, you know, I think that's a powerful question and apropos to so many organizations because there's always some kind of crisis. Like it with Zoe, because we are internationally focused, when there's an, you know, an earthquake or a hurricane or fires locally in the U.S., that always kind of affects some of the uh, priorities for people in giving. I really feel kind of to draw out to the kind of big picture, the 10,000 foot picture, that the impact and measurable effectiveness that organizations can show to their donors in tangible ways are going to drive donors' energy in the next 20 years. The last 20 years, I think it was, it was and, and this is broad generalities, which are always dangerous to, to paint with, but the last 20 years, I think it was a lot about pulling on people's heartstrings and having a low overhead, which I'm all in favor of low overheads and heartstrings. I think that's great. But but I think that was kind of the focus. The next 20 years, I think it's going to be measurable impact and return on investment. And, and I think donors are becoming more savvy about that. And frankly, it's a trend that I welcome because organizations that are actually showing sustainable impact and can actually measure that will, will thrive in that environment. So I, I would recommend that organizations invest in monitoring and evaluation and being able to come up with, with data points and, and be able to actually measure what is not only the impact immediately, but the impact sustainably beyond the program or the intervention. Uh, and then communicating that to donors. And you don't have to use the language of return on investment if that makes people uncomfortable, but we do. They're charitable investments not completely separately from how they view their secular investments. And they want to see a return on it. Even if the return doesn't come directly to them, it goes to other people. They want to see that sustainable return. That's interesting. So measurable impact and a return on your investment, you feel like is the most important thing in both donors' minds and board members' minds for that matter. I've always thought that having an excellent program will attract money. Now, that's not always the case. I mean, if you don't tell anyone about it, well... You know that's a problem, but but if if you maintain the excellence of the program, the money follows. But I also believe that kind of um, donors are really savvy, and I don't think we've given donors enough 
credit for thinking through uh, what nonprofits are doing. A lot of times, nonprofits will get a little like, oh, well, you know, you don't really understand what we do. We're the experts. So just give us your money and we'll use it well. And I think that worked in the past. I don't think that's going to work in the future. I think people are going to want to feel like they understand the process and what's coming from it. As we talked about COVID and and fundraising, obviously, is a big piece of that. But moving beyond just fundraising, it certainly seems we're in this new normal now um, of leadership in nonprofit organizations when it comes to COVID and and all the um, challenges it brought to us. For my listeners, again, what advice would you give to the leaders when it comes to leading this new normal? What are the most important leadership lessons you've learned during COVID that you'd pass on to them for their leadership role as we move forward? Yeah, you know, I I, I think COVID, for, for my organization, Zoe Empowers, it was it was really instructive. We've spent a lot of time making sure that everyone in the organization has a voice. And during COVID, that paid off in incredible ways. For example, our, our, org, our org chart is upside down. So the participants are actually at the top of our organization chart. And then it kind of works its way down. And all the real serious innovations that we had during the pandemic of them came from the young participants, the orphan children and vulnerable youth in the program themselves. And what allowed us to be able to thrive program-wise during the pandemic was the young people being able to experiment, come up with things that work, share that with others in their group and other groups in the program. And then the staff were like, hey, what's going on? And they would teach the staff. And then the staff would be meeting with all the other country managers. We're across seven countries. And so the, when, the, when the participants came up with ideas, there was an organizational structure to share those ideas almost in real time to other country programs so that, so that our, our pivot was very quick because we had almost 60,000 participants trying to figure out how to pivot during this kind of time that no one no one knew exactly what to do. I really that's really powerful. I, I love how you approach that and the fact you do have a wide swath uh, in terms of what you do. It tells me that you've been successful at it. Now, personally speaking, I always like to ask my guests when it comes to leadership, what keeps you sharp? How do you keep yourself sharp as a leader? In other words, what books do you read? Uh, what podcasts maybe you do listen to? What resources do you go to that have most impacted you growing in your own leadership? I, you know, I have a pretty eclectic reading appetite. Uh, so, so everything from, you know, books like When Helping Hurts and Toxic Charity that, that have kind of shaped the field as we go forward. To, to, you know, science fiction and historical fiction and theology. I am dyslexic. And so reading is slow for me. So one of the things that I've done is I revel in surrounding myself or making myself available to be around, uh, kind of clinging on to some really successful leaders in the for-profit industry. And I find that I, I, I love to, I love to talk with my colleagues in the not for profit world and the NGO world. And I always learn things from, from those colleagues. But when I speak to someone who's, re- who's led a major corporation for 20 years, I-, I find that there's a discipline of thought in the for profit world that helps me in the not for profit world. Um, I think some of that stems from a very clear bottom line. 
And I think not-for-profits also have a very clear bottom line, but we don't often kind of express it in such uh, kind of stark terms uh, to our detriment. Um, so, so, so I just love it. And that's why I love having a board because a board just gives me an excuse to gather these people together and, and listen to their wisdom and, and, and see how they envision their work. And then what drives them to volunteer for my work is also powerful. I love that. Now, do you, out of curiosity, do you formally have a coach or are you getting mentored intentionally by some of these leaders you're speaking of, or is it just more kind of ad hoc having lunches here and there and connecting relationally? Almost all of my board members see how, how much need I have for, for guidance. And so they all reach out to do that. <laughs> <laughs> they made it their personal mission yeah, to no, help I'm you so, out. It's so obvious. They're like, oh, this guy needs some help. So, so, so I can just avail myself of kind of listening to them, which I just find fun. I, I've been in other organizations where we dreaded board meetings. And I've never found that to be the case. And, and some of that is I just have a really, a board that I really love. It's a really eclectic group. In, in by, by a lot of different measures, but they all kind of teach the organization something and teach me personally something. So that, that's something even beyond books that I really enjoy being mentored by people, even if they don't, even if it's not a formal mentoring relationship, it is still mentoring, which is really fun. You know, I like you added a new element I've never thought about it before is really utilizing the board meeting and of course interacting with the board as an opportunity as you as executive director, CEO, as an opportunity to be mentored and to learn as opposed to, like you said, dreading this meeting, like, oh, I've got to perform for the board or you've got to really prove that you're doing a good job. I really like you kind of flip that and you're receiving uh, and allowing the board really to demonstrate their great experience and their leadership insights. That's a really good, I like that. That's good. It's a lot. It's it's useful to me, and I think it it fosters a better board meeting. When, when you're asking, instead of just presenting what what you've accomplished, when you're asking questions that are actually real questions, uh, and asking questions that the board members have expertise to answer. So all the mundane stuff, we don't bother the board with that. We've we've got those things, and if we run off the rails, it'll be obvious. But the board can can kind of expand our vision. To, to things that we hadn't really thought of doing. I really like that. That's an excellent nugget. Okay, good. Well, for my listeners, they may want to get to know a little bit more about you, certainly want to learn more about Zoe Empower. So how could they do that? What's the best way for them to connect with you and with the organization? Well, probably the best way to connect with me is just email me. And I'm, I have very little life outside of Zoe. So I'm, I'm always happy to talk to people. Uh, my, my email is, is just gaston.warner at zoeempowers.org. Or you can go to zoeempowers.org, our website, and, and my, my information's all over that as well. And, and we love talking to people, um, either just being conversation partners or talking about ways that we can partner as an organization. Zoe is structured more as a social franchise than a single organization. And so we pretty, pretty much exclusively work in partnerships. And we also kind of, for those in the, in the kind of orphan children and youth care world, we're also happy to give the model away to other organizations. And that's part of kind of uh, our mission to grow it. We want to grow ourselves, but we also want to give it away effectively. So we're always happy to talk to others. Well, that's fantastic. Well, again, thank you for sharing your insights here on the show. And again, congratulations for winning that award. I know just the little experience I've had, they pick good nonprofits that are really doing a great job here, of course, it's internationally, not just nationally. And so you're living out what you're talking about today. So again, thanks for taking time to be on the show. 
Rob, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for the work you're doing. I think it's going to make the whole field better. Hey, friends, I wanted you to know that this podcast can be found on both iTunes and Spotify. If you're wondering how to find it, just type in the words Nonprofit Leadership Podcast, and this podcast should show up. We also encourage you, when you go on iTunes, let us know what you think. Give us a review. Give us a rating. We would love to hear what you think of this podcast, and your feedback will help expand this podcast to get it out to as many people as possible. You can also find other resources and interviews of past guests on my website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. Again, that website is non nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, keep making your world better.